Good morning. Carol, you look perky today. Are you really perky or you just look perky? All right. Well, I'm glad. Uh, a couple of you have asked about Israel trips and Bible lands trips and whatnot. If that's still happening, and it is. Uh, I've got a few trips next year, and there's still room. If you would like to experience the lands of the Bible and with your Bible in hand, it is a wonderful way to, um, to grow in your depth and appreciation for the context of the Bible. And those of you who have been to Israel, who has been to Israel or a Bible land before? Okay. Well, you see someone sitting next to you, so grab them and say, is it really that big a deal? <laughs> and I'll just let them answer all on their own. One of the great places to go in the lands of the Bible is Egypt. Egypt. Uh, Egypt is a fascinating place to visit for a number of reasons, and uh, one of the things that most fascinated me about it is their, their obsession with the afterlife. It's, uh, it's everywhere in Egypt, you know, uh, hieroglyphics and just their history. In fact, one of the first things that a pharaoh does after he comes to power is uh, begins building his tomb. I mean, how'd you, how'd you like that? You get elected to whatever, and the first thing you do is start building your tomb, planning for death. This is what they do. They, they plan for their tomb, and they plan for their temple. Their tomb and their temple, that's their big priorities, and they've got people building and working and getting ready for their tomb and their temple. And, of course, their tombs are just filled with treasures. Uh, they used to build pyramids over them, but uh, they found out that the pyramid over a tomb is basically like X marks the spot on here's where the treasure is and thought, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that. And then they started hiding the tombs. And so in Luxor in the, in the Valley of the Kings, uh, they hide, they, they have hidden tombs. And of course, only recently, well, in the grand scheme of history, King Tut's tomb was found just to give us a glimmer. And this was a little pharaoh. He was not a big deal. And yet his riches in that tomb were just astounding to give an insight as to how important the afterlife was. Well, uh, one of the best mortuary tombs, and it's called a mortuary temple, I should say, not tomb, mortuary temple, is in Luxor, and it's by, you've probably heard of her, Hatshepsut. Try to say that ten times real fast. She was one of only two pharaohs who was a woman. And uh, her stepson, after her, did everything he could to erase her memory. In fact, if you go to the mortuary temple of Hatshepsut in the, the area of the Valley of the Kings in Luxor, Egypt, it's magnificent in its grandeur. I mean, I don't know of another one that's more magnificent. And it's just, if you step aside in the fact that they built it to worship, you know, a, a pharaoh, that was the whole point is to worship the memory of this pharaoh. Uh, you, you go up and you see all the, the hieroglyphs of Hapchutsut, and her face has been chiseled off. And what basically happened is her stepson, uh, the III, decided that he wanted to erase her memory and just basically chiseled her face off and tried to erase her from history and was, was moderately successful because she was only recently rediscovered as a pharaoh. But this is a pretty common practice. I mean, he wasn't the only one that did it, but it, it's a practice that's called Domnatio Memoriae. Memoriae. Domnatio Memoriae. 
and you can, it's a Latin phrase that means condemnation of the memory. How'd you like to have that phrase spoken over you? Damnatio memoriae. Well, more than one pharaoh would have that done. History repeats itself. And I also discovered that that happens in our families. Damnatio memoriae happened when I was a little boy looking through photo albums. Looking through photo albums at my grandmother's house. You remember photo albums? There was actually, we actually had physical pictures that you would you know, print and you had to wait to see them. You didn't have to decide, oh, it doesn't look good. Let's try it again. There's no trying it again. You know, if your eyes are closed in the photo, that's what you get. Anyway, looking through photo albums, you've got basically four or five, whatever you can squeeze on a page, and, you know, it's got that little cellophane thing that folds over it. Well, there'd be some pages like with these empty spaces. It's like, why didn't they put a picture there? And eventually I went to my grandmother and asked, why, why are there empty spaces? And she says, well, you know, they're... They're not in the family anymore. <laughs> oh. I said, Damnatio memoriae, Grandma. <clears throat> we have chiseled their face out of our history. We'll do this. And we do this because their names draw blood. The, 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 the name, their name is like a prick that draws blood emotionally. And, uh, you know, I sort of... We have a laugh about it, what the pharaohs did, but it's not that funny in our own lives. You know, as you think about the photos that have been removed and the, the people that, that have come and gone in our lives, it, is, uh, it can be very painful. And I know for a fact, I know for a fact in this room we would be shocked at the skeletons that are, that are in our family history. And I know it for a fact because I'm in this room. And I'm sure that it's the same with your life and your family. We would be shocked at, at what, what uh, pain we have in our family history. The book of Deuteronomy, God told Israel, he said, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It's not that God is punishing children for their father's sins. In fact, he goes on to say, that is not what I'm going to do. It's more of, of the fact that the father's sins have an impact to the third and fourth generation. Uh, my parents divorced before I was even a year old. And so I, I'm very aware of this, how many generations this affects. And I think, and I was very aware of it uh, when I began, when Kathy and I had children. Our daughters didn't have grandparents. They weren't around to, you know, to free babysitting. It was, of course, one thing we missed. But also, just the holidays. I mean, the simple things of getting together is just a burden. You know, oh, Christmas is coming again. It's not a joyful time. When I think Christmas, I don't have good emotions because my whole growing up years were years of being shuttled back and forth and even getting double the gifts wasn't worth it. Even getting double the gifts wasn't worth it. But think about that. If, for example, there is one generation, so you've got my parents, you've got me, you've got my girls, and then when they have kids, <clears throat> then the, uh, that's the fourth generation. And it takes about four generations for that initial sin, as it were, to work itself out. 
and, and the next generation has to make the decision, now we're going to try to turn the tide for the future generations. Well, let's look together at 2 Kings chapter 22, 2 Kings 22, at a king who decided enough was enough. There were generations before him that didn't follow God, and King Josiah decided, that is not who I'm going to be, and that is not uh, what I want my kingdom to be. Josiah. If, if King David ever had a rival of faithfulness of someone who was a man after God's own heart, it would be Josiah. In fact, I think Josiah probably went farther than David in godliness and devotion. We've got some of David's sins. Of course, we've got a ton of scripture on David, not a ton on Josiah. But Josiah was amazing in his passion and what he did for the Lord. Josiah. Uh, and what is especially amazing is the fact that Josiah's grandfather was Manasseh. You remember Manasseh from last week? Bad news. And we're, we're going to skip uh, Manasseh's son or Josiah's father, Ammon. Uh, he was also bad news, but he was very short, very short-lived. I don't mean he was a short guy. I mean he reigned for a short time. But Josiah says, enough's enough. We're going to make it different. 2 Kings 22, begin right in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkoth. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. Remember the purpose of Kings versus Chronicles. We've talked about it quite a few times. Kings, by and large, focused on the sins of the kings to justify the exile. In other words, in, in, for the reader, here's why the exile happened, because God said, if you disobey, I'll take you out of the land. Well, First and Second Kings proves God was totally justified in doing what he did. But Chronicles, even though it covers the same historical time, has a different focus. It focuses on the faithfulness of kings. So to have Josiah and his godliness recorded in the book of 2 Kings, especially here toward the end, where the exile is like only a couple of generations away, is astounding. This man, Josiah, or boy, we should say, eight years old when he becomes king, he got off on the right foot. Eight years old when he became king. Never underestimate the power of God in the life of a child. Never underestimate the power of God in the life of a child. I was reading, uh, I think it was on Twitter or something. Um, I was reading on Twitter or something, I think, this past uh, couple weeks, and uh, one lady said that she was in a Sunday school class, and they were talking about creation. And they said to all of the children, you know, little children sitting around, uh, describing the creation, and the teacher asked, Sunday school teacher asked to, to the children, what would you say or what would you do if you saw God creating the world? You know, and some kids said this, some kids said that. But this one little girl said, I would sing. Isn't that a great answer? Oh, and I just, I love when Dennis was talking about those kids that were up there singing today. 
I mean, I'm glad you weren't looking at me because I was up there bawling. First of all, to have them read scripture and then have them sing as they did. It's just beautiful. And I thought about this little girl when she said, if I saw creation, I would sing. Never underestimate the power of God in the life of a child. How many of you came to Christ as a child? Oh, it's a lot of hands. It's a lot of hands. Well, me too. I was eight years old when I trusted Christ. Eight years old. And I remember it, of course, very, very well. My daughter, she was five years old, and she has a wonderful story. Uh, uh, she, uh, she went in her closet because she didn't want to be frightened if an angel or something appeared. <laughs> she figured she could hide from the angel if she went in the closet. It's a great story. But it wasn't until I was a young man in college that I really started walking with God. My church upbringing did a great job of getting me saved, didn't do a great job of bringing me along in the faith. But I love it also, Josiah, we're told, he was 16 years old. Uh, when he had a definite commitment to the Lord. We don't see it in Kings, we see it in the parallel passage in Chronicles, but we do see when he is 26 years old, as verses 3 through 7 say, verse 3 says, in the 18th year of King Josiah, so add 8 to 18, 26 years old, he has a definite commitment and passion to go on to begin the repair of the temple. Look at, uh, look at down at verse 8 now. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. The priest, notice the details, the priest called it the book of the law. The book of the law. The scribe called it a book. He's given me a book. And notice the scribe mentioned the Bible after he talks about, oh, by the way, here's what we did with all the money, verse 9. It's almost like it's a P.S. to the report. And a scribe is one who copies the Bible. This guy was not even that attuned to uh, what a scribe did, at least, at least as far as the scriptures. And we see just a hint, a glimmer here of how far Judah had slipped in their devotion to, to God and to the Word of God. Remember, we've got Manasseh was Josiah's grandfather. Manasseh reigned 55 years. So we've got a long time of no Bible as a priority in Judah. And in fact, some thinking priest probably hid a copy of the scriptures in the temple in the time of Manasseh. And so they're cleaning it out, just as Messiah, uh, Messiah, Josiah says, and they find a copy of the scriptures. And they bring it to the king, they read it to the king, and the king responds with sorrow. Look at what Josiah says in verse 13. 
He says, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people in all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And then look at verse 14. Carol was talking about this lady here just a few minutes ago. Hekiah the priest, this guy, that guy, that guy, and that guy went to Huldah the prophetess. There she is. And you're exactly right. Those gates at the southern steps of the Temple Mount that are bricked closed today, but they were the gates that the laymen and the laywomen would enter the temple. Jesus walked through the Huldah gates. In fact, you can go to those three gates and uh, there's a portion of a lintel. The Romans destroyed most of it before it was rebuilt, but there's a portion of a lintel of one of those gates that was, that was there when Jesus was there. And so you can kind of get all woo-woo about it, but that, that rock actually would have beheld our Lord as he passed by and entered right there at the Holy Gates. They go and inquire of the Lord, and Josiah says the wrath of God has been against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book. In other words, we are dealing with the backwash of decisions that our fathers made. Josiah was experiencing, in some sense, what you may be experiencing if your parents did not live according to the scriptures. It has spilled over into your life, and it still affects you today. I know for a fact it does. How should you respond? What should you do? What did Josiah do? Well, we won't read all of it, but as chapter 23, if you just kind of turn the page and look, glance through all of chapter 23, you see the great reforms of Josiah. He calls together the people of Jerusalem to hear the Bible being read. It's probably the first time that these people have heard the Word of God in, in, uh, in that generation for sure. Josiah says, first thing we need to do is read them the word. And so they get to hear the word. They bring, it to, they bring it together and they hear the word. And they also have a Passover, we're told, unlike any that has happened since the time of Samuel. All the way back, even before the first king Saul. Josiah says, we're going to do this and we're going to do it big. It's going to be a big deal. And Josiah basically led his nation back into a devotion to the scriptures and to a devotion to following the scriptures. Uh, a couple years ago, I read in the news that uh, there was a Bible that belonged to Abraham Lincoln that was found. It was actually in a private home, just a private collection of this family that had had it for 150 years. Historians didn't know that this Bible even existed. And uh, the Bible is now, though it's been donated, it's now in the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum in Illinois. So next time you're up there, you could check it out. But the executive director of the museum told the New York Times, and I, I wrote down what his words because I thought they were pretty interesting. He said, we see the Bible as an important artifact to preserve for history's sake but also the beginning of a conversation about the relevance of Lincoln and the role of religion in our lives today. I read that and thought of Josiah in a way because the word of God was hidden for generations, now revealed. But for Josiah, it was much more than a relic that went to a museum. 
that was only significant because it belonged to Lincoln. Josiah said, no, this word of God is significant because it hasn't been obeyed. Our nation is in the state it's in because it hasn't been obeyed. Our fathers have not obeyed the law. And Josiah reads the word of God publicly and then commits his nation to following the word of God. And they do it. It was hidden for generations, but now it is revealed. Well, a couple of principles we can get from Josiah's life as we'll look at it. But the first, it's pretty simple, right from the text, is this. Our model for living is not our parents' example, but God's word. Our model for living is not our parents' example, but God's word. Now, it's really easy to see this if your parents didn't live God's word. It's harder to see this if they did, because you think, I'm following my parents' good example. And that's great. We should follow the good examples of our parents. But our model for living is not our parents. Because what's going to happen is, you, if you're going to try hard, you're going to think, I have arrived. Now I am as godly as my parents. But Christ still calls us to more than that. He wants us to be like Christ, not like our parents. Our model for living is not our parents' example. Whether it was a bad example, obviously, but even if it was a good example. Uh, I read about a survey of hundreds of children. These family life specialists came up with the three things that fathers most say in responding to their kids. So these are the three phrases that fathers most say in responding to their children. Um, First is this, I'm too tired. (laughs) Second, we don't have the money. And then finally, keep quiet. Those are the top three. I'm too tired, we don't have the money, keep quiet. And I read that and, and was so grateful because even, in the, even though my parents divorced when I was uh, not even a year old, my mom remarried to a man who obviously was my stepdad and whom I consider my dad. I can't ever remember him telling me those things. He always made time to be with my brother and me. In fact, so it was so unusual that he didn't play with us in the evenings that he actually said one evening, and I can still remember where I was in the yard when he said it. He said, I'm not playing with y'all anymore this year. Oh, I just... It it was New Year's Eve. (laughs) It was New Year's Eve. So, in other words, he says, we'll play again tomorrow. I don't ever remember my dad talking with me like this. And so... It's difficult for me to, to sort of connect with these statements in a way, in a way. But uh, I was sad to read, I guess it was, I know it's been within the last month or six weeks, of the tragic death, you probably saw it, of Anne Hesch, an, uh, the actress. Uh, interview, I remember reading an interview that she did with Larry King years ago, probably 20, 25 years ago. Uh, Anne Hesch said that she was born to a religious parents in Ohio. Her father was a choir director. Her mother was a devout Christian. And Hesch said, quote, 
My mom loved it that Jesus was everything that's loving, and in the meantime, I'm getting abused by my father, and she's doing nothing about it. When uh, Hesh was 13, her father died of AIDS, having hidden a life of homosexuality. And she said she had the perfect background to become an actress. She said, we were great pretenders. She said, my therapist never knew the extent of the world I created to get out of the shame of my abuse. My family was poor, and we wanted to be rich. We were homeless, and we pretended to have a home. We were great pretenders. And... uh, I read her words, and I think, you know, to some extent we can all relate. But it's also true that we don't ha- history doesn't have to repeat itself. You may have been hardwired to fail. You may have grown up in a family that hardwired you to fail. Bad examples, bad, uh, uh, no encouragement in the scriptures. Your situation's different than mine. I was hardwired to fail in many ways. But God specializes in miracles. Think about Josiah. Josiah was hardwired to fail. The Bible never tells us what made this eight-year-old have a passion for God, especially when Manasseh and Ammon, the grandfather and father, were such spiritual mis- misfits. It could have been, maybe, Manasseh, who, when he, after he repented, told his grandson sat him down, sat little Josiah down and said, let me tell you, I know you're young, but you need to know I've learned it the hard way. Follow God. Follow God. Who knows what it was, but boy, Josiah got it. He brought about this wonderful reform, and he went straight to God's word as the standard. He said, our parents have not followed God's word. We're going to follow God's word. And the specifics of chapter 23, if you look at verse uh, 4, verse 6, just sort of skim it, you'll see that uh, he tore down everything that competed with the worship of God, and he burned it in the Kidron Valley. I don't know why everything gets burned in the Kidron Valley, but that's, that's usually where it gets taken. Take it to the Kidron Valley and burn it, and ground it to dust. Interesting, verse 6 brought the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron, burned it in the brook Kidron, and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. He, he was serious about the reform. And uh, he even went outside of Judah and went north into the area of Israel, or what uh, had been Israel before the exile, and uh, cleaned it up up there as well. He had a passion for it. And, of course, he rebuilt the temple. So the second principle we can get from his actions is this. Tear down anything that competes with your worship of God and build up what assists it. Tear down what competes with it, build up what assists it. We've all got those things in our lives. You've got something right now in your life that is competing with your walk with God. Take it to the Kidron Valley and burn it. Take it and get rid of it. And it could be thought processes from your childhood. You've been hardwired to think that way. And here's the thing. Normal is what we know. You grow up thinking this is normal when you could be the most dysfunctional person in your thinking. 
But you don't know that you are because the normal is what you know. Why is, that's why it's so essential to, be, to bathe your mind in the Bible, to filter your thoughts and motives and reasons through the Bible. Because our parents are not our standard, even good parents. The Bible is. Christ is. Tear down anything that competes with your worship of God and build up that which assists it. That includes your thinking. Now, keep your finger here, if you would, and turn to, well, maybe it doesn't take a finger, but just turn to verse 25. Same chapter, 23, chapter 23, verse 25. We're told, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I'll remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said my name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho king of Egypt went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went to meet him. And when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo. Interesting. Why in the world would the Lord allow that? An early death for this wonderful, godly king. Well, I mean, we're told the reason why. Back in uh, chapter 22, verse 20, chapter 22, verse 20, the Lord says, Behold, I'll gather you to your fathers, and you'll be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes will not see the evil that I'm going to bring on this place. The Lord decided to take Josiah home early so that he wouldn't have to experience the pain of the exile and Nebuchadnezzar coming down and destroying the city. In fact, What we looked at there in chapter 23 about Josiah going up to meet and Pharaoh Necho and all that there in verse 29, uh, we aren't told here. I I believe it is mentioned in the parallel passage in Chronicles, but they went up to a place called Carchemish. Carchemish. The Battle of Carchemish was a very, very pivotal battle in history. It basically transferred the power from the Assyrians to the Babylonians. Major transition in history. And yet, in Scripture, it's just sort of a, a, you know, lent on the page. It's not mentioned. In fact, most of the time it's mentioned only to mention how Josiah dies. But in world history, it's a big deal, which gives us comfort when we look at the big fuss that goes on in our world today. You know, it looks like such a big deal, all the politics and everything that's going on. But from God's perspective, it's lent on the page. The the important stuff that he recorded was the death of his godly servant, Josiah. That's what mattered to God. That's what made it to the Bible. The only reason that the Battle of Carchemish made it to the Bible is because you've got to have a context for Josiah's death. But also in that year, that was 605 B.C. when Josiah died, the Battle of Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar won Carchemish, went back to, to Nineveh to become king, then came back again and began to make his way south. Carchemish is up in Syria there on the Euphrates River, and then 
Nebuchadnezzar makes his way down through, uh, through Israel because he's, he's wiped out Pharaoh Necho. He's on his way down to Egypt. And on the way down, as he's making his way through Israel, he sacks Jerusalem. And this is the first of three waves of the exile. Is in 605 B.C. Uh, and the reason I'm sharing all this historical minutia with you is because in 605 B.C., guess who was part of that first wave that was taken from uh, Jerusalem? A prophet named Daniel. Exactly. And why is that significant? Because Daniel was an incredibly godly young man. Young man. Him, as well as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, young, godly men were taken and represented the Lord in a foreign country. Why is that significant? Because they had a, were a direct influence of Josiah. Josiah's godliness permeated. And Daniel, and the book of Daniel, and the godly example of Daniel is a direct result of the influence of Josiah's kingdom. So, Josiah had an impact, and it continues to make an impact in our lives as well. I know that a lot of you have experienced um, challenges as a child and your pain at your parents' sins. Um, Josiah did as well. And he did not look and say, you know what, I'm, uh, I'm damaged goods. Uh, my upbringing was so bad that now I've got to justify it by repeating that. Instead, he decided, I'm going to be different. I realize that my fathers did not follow the Lord. I'm going to be different. And Kathy and I didn't have perfect parents. And uh, by the way, our children don't either. <laughs> and neither do yours. So in some sense, it's sort of irrelevant. In some sense, it's sort of irrelevant. What, you had good parents, bad parents, great or I'm sorry. What are you going to do? And you think, well, you know, Wayne, I've already raised my kids. I already got grandkids. Some of you already have great grandkids. It's like I should have heard this about 55 years ago. Nope, God is sovereign. He wanted you to hear it right here today. And maybe this isn't the first time you've heard it. But it's never too late to begin rewiring your mind, deprogramming some of the things that maybe your parents told you that are just wrong, that you've got to filter it through Scripture. Listen to a couple of verses as you take a mental inventory of what you, like Josiah, need to tear down and what you need to build up. Listen to a couple of verses. Don't turn there. If you want to jot them down, you can as far as the reference, but just listen. 1 Peter 1, verse 18. 1 Peter 1, 18. Peter writes, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You are not bought with cheap things, perishable things, like silver or gold. And notice the context from your futile way of life of your parents, of your forefathers. You were purchased with the blood of Christ. Christ has redeemed you from whatever circumstance you came from. The blood of Christ has redeemed you. Jesus Christ died on the cross 
for your sins, for your shame. Because shame comes from sin. And if sin's gone, shame's gone. There's no reason to feel shame any longer. Christ's death on the cross has taken that from you. If you'll take it to the Kidron Valley and burn it. Listen also to Joshua 24, verse 15. Joshua says, If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves whom you will serve. And then he gives some options. Whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says that their God that their their fathers served gods beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates River. It's referring to Abraham. Abraham was a pagan idolater prior to God calling him out of idolatry. He says you can serve those gods, the gods of your parents, or you can serve the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. Now transfer those principles to our lives and they still work. You can serve the priorities of your parents, good or bad. You can serve the priorities or the gods of our culture. But each of us has to determine uh, for ourselves and our own home who we're going to follow. Joshua says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So even, even if your parents were godly parents, um, you're not going to stand there at the gates of glory on the coattails of your parents' faith. It's got to be your faith. And the same is true with our kids, which also gives us freedom to let go of them in their spiritual lives. You've planted the gospel. You've done your best to, to display the gospel in their lives. If they hot, head off to left field, <clears throat> you pray, you try, but realize, God, they're in your hands. Everyone decides, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is Joshua's point. This is Peter's point, And this is our application. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, said this, resolved that all men should live for the glory of God, resolved, second, that whether others do or not, I will. You could change that with families as well, couldn't you? Resolved that my family should live for the glory of God, resolved, second, that whether they do or not, I will. I know I've shared with you this story before, but it's so relevant here, I'm going to risk the redundant and let you have it one more time. Plus, it's just a good story. Um, I don't know if it's an urban legend or not, but that doesn't matter, does it? It still works. <laughs> I think it's true. But there was a, a trainer in the Arizona circus that trained elephants. And he would um, train them to do tricks for the, you know, circus and also for Hollywood movies. Well, he was asked one time, how in the world do you stake down that 10-ton elephant with just a tent stake? I mean, you got this 10-ton elephant, and he could easily pull that stake up. And the trainer says, oh, that's easy. When they're babies and only weigh 300 pounds, we stake them down. And they pull and they tug and they can't get away from that stake. And they try over and over and over and over. And then the elephant's great memory kicks in. I can't pull up. Pull up that stake. And even when they are grown adults and could pull up a car, they don't even try to pull up the stake because they know they can't. Now, 
that transfers, doesn't it, in our hearts and minds to our upbringing. As we are young, as we are impressionable, some coach, some pastor, some parent tells us something. You know, you're ugly, you're stupid, you'll never amount to anything. And wham, we drive a stake in our minds. And when we're old, we don't even try tugging against it because we're committed to to the fact that it's true. When the reality is we're older, we're stronger, Christ has brought us to a place to where if we just give the thing a tug, it would come up. There may be some things like that that you're still hanging on to, lies that you heard even as a kid. We've all heard things in our parents' angry moments that they've told us. In fact, we could probably each one of us stand up and quote a line that deeply hurt us. That's not an elephant stake in your life. That doesn't define you. You can pull against that. You can filter that through the Scripture and allow the Lord Jesus to renew your mind, to put it in its context. My parents weren't perfect. Maybe they did the very best they could. Maybe they didn't. But we can let it go. Just let it go. We need to think more like Christians and less like elephants. God wasn't asleep at the wheel the day he chose your family of origin. He came from the wisdom of his sovereignty. Remember our study through Joseph? Joseph shows us this more than so many characters in the scriptures. And his statement to his brothers is so good, it's worth repeating. He told his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He saw his evil upbringing as part of God's sovereignty to bring about a good result that could have happened no other way. I can look in my life and see the same thing from my upbringing. You can probably do the same in yours. And if you can't, or you've never tried to do that, I encourage you to do that. And if you can't see it, then just trust God that it's there. Maybe it hasn't made itself clear yet. The way that our family treated us doesn't define us. Even if we had a great home, it doesn't define us. Our upbringing is not who we are. God tells us who we are. We are whole. We are complete in Jesus Christ. We are complete in Jesus Christ. This is the truth that we need to filter through our minds and believe and give God the praise. Let's pray. Father, we stand and applaud at your work in the life of King Josiah. It's really quite amazing as we think about how this eight-year-old had his heart turned to you. Many of us have come from such backgrounds, and we also stand amazed, can see nothing but the grace of God in our lives as the reason that we would come to you, because we were hardwired to fail. But your grace has been abundant. Thank you. And Father, if there are any here today that are still staked to a memory, would you give them the strength through the truth of the Scripture that they can pull that up with, with the power that you give. They can move on. Give them the strength. Give them the courage to do that and the joy of that great decision. And Father, we pray for any that are here today that maybe have never made that 
ultimate decision of placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for their sins, that you would give them the courage as well to give up an effort of good deeds to earn it and instead realize sin takes it all, all hope of earning it away, and Christ's death has taken our sin from us. And may they believe. And Father, for those of us who do believe, we give you thanks, realizing that it's only by your grace. And as we press on and move on in the shadow of the great Josiah and ultimately, of course, of our Savior Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done and all that you are doing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Wayne, for those words. Uh, it's nice to see this room almost full again uh, after a couple of years. And uh, again, welcome to our visitors. Thank you for being here. Uh, whether uh, safe travels, whether you travel on the other side of the world or back home in this community, uh, hope to see you again real soon. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance on a up on you and give you peace. Have a good week. <laughs>